Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O. Welcome back to The Peripheral. I need to start by giving a few shout outs and thank yous. First and foremost, Misty, thank you for being there. You are an awesome supporter of the show. Erica, Lisa, Amy, all my moderators, you guys are awesome. Brooke and Allison, thank you so much for all your help. I got a couple nice messages the other day from Doreen and Max. So thank you guys. I've had a series of guests come on and talk about sexual abuse, rape, statutory rape, and trying not to put out three or four episodes in a row like that. I I don't want to overwhelm or fatigue people with such a heavy topic, so I'm going to try to break them up. But today's topic is about child molestation and how it can affect the rest of your life and the ripple effects it has on everyone you know, your family, your children, and your life. My name's Melissa and I'm from Sydney in Australia. Well, I'm about an hour out of Sydney. I'm a single mum. I have a seven-month-old daughter who is just amazing. So I just live with her, my dog, my cat. I sort of... I guess I've gotten to this point in my life now. A lot of the things that happened when I was a kid has led me to where I am now. Basically, there was a few different incidences when I was a kid where I was sexually abused by partners of my mother, which first started when I was five years old and then happened again with, it happened a few times with that partner, then happened with another partner of hers. I think he was, she was with him directly after this guy. So the first guy, he's passed away now, which I'll get to how it all happened. His name was Dennis. He, my mum was with him for about a year. We lived with him and everything like that. And he sexually assaulted myself and my younger sister, who she was only three at the time, which is kind of fucked up. And then my mum had another partner. And I'm pretty sure it was directly after him because it was the house we moved to after they separated. He never did anything. Like he never touched me, but he would... For example, when I'd walk to school, I'd walk past his house on the way to school and he'd like expose himself to me, like say, you know, come over and I'll give you 20 bucks for school if you let me show you my dick. And at the time, I'd just come from this really horrible situation. So I thought that was normal. I didn't see anything wrong with that until I was a lot older and was like, that's really messed up. A whole bunch of other stuff that sort of happened after that's just basically how that very first incident has shaped the rest of my life. And the last few years I've spent sort of reflecting on how it has affected me and it's sort of all ties in together. I don't know. One thing sort of led to another and a lot of things I've done through my life and the way, even the way I parent has been affected by what happened. So that makes sense without rambling too much. (laughs) No, no, it, it does make sense. It's everything is sort of molded around this and you have, you have a heightened awareness towards certain things because you want to protect your child. 
Yeah, like even now, so like I said, I'm a single mum. So my daughter's father is, him and I were married. Uh, well, we still are, we're separated, but he's never met my daughter. So I've started going, okay, I've been single for a couple of years now. Like I'll look at online dating and get on Tinder. And there's a couple of other dating apps that I'm sure you guys have in America, like Bumble. There's a couple of others, but I was like, I'll go on there. But the second anyone even comments on the fact that I have a daughter and if they somehow see my Instagram or something like that and comment on her looks, it automatically throws a guard up with me. Mm. And if a guy says, oh, you've got a really beautiful daughter, which is just such a a normal compliment. I'll be in the shops and people go, oh, she's so cute. And it's just, it's what you say. Like you always comment on how cute a baby is. But if a guy says it and it's someone that in a dating aspect, automatically I just close up and I just shut down and I can't, I go into like overprotective mode and I'll, if it's on Tinder, I'll unmatch them. I'll stop talking to them. If I've been talking to them through text message or something, I'll just stop replying because I just, I clam up and I can't process how to how to just separate the fact that that's just a really nice compliment to, okay, is he grooming her? So I'm very much an overprotective mum in that sense. So I kind of feel sorry for her if she grows up. <laughs> well, and it's, if you see yourself doing it and you watch yourself doing it and you know yeah. that it probably isn't a thing, but it's, right. I'm sure it's hard to know that you have this behavior and not even be able to really change it too much. That's the thing. Like I, okay, so a couple of, years ago it would have been what year are we now 2019 2017 it was around march basically i got a call from my sister one day and she said you know are you sitting down and i said no and she goes go sit down she'd gotten a phone call from a detective from a local police station who had found our contact details because growing up my, we always thought mum never reported the rapes we just thought that it was something that she found out about and she left him and it was left at that and apparently she had actually reported it and then my mum's ex-partner Dennis he had gone and made threats and he would have people driving past our house and stuff like that so my mum freaked out and my mum was a single mum obviously as well and she just went to the police and retracted her statement and said, it was all made up. I don't want to go any further. And back in March of 2017, this detective had tracked down my sister and I from this old report. And this young girl who be about my age, so I'm 28, she had come forward and she was the daughter of his partner that he was with after my mum. And he had gone on and he'd sexually assaulted her and her two sisters and she freaked out from what I could tell because at the time the detective wasn't able to tell me much about those details but what happened was this girl was just traumatized by it as as you are like I know I still have dreams about it and I can still vividly remember the house and I can still vividly remember different incidences that happened and I can still see his face so vividly even though I haven't seen him in the flesh since I was five years old but she actually fled and moved to Queensland So we're in New South Wales and she ended up making a report up in Queensland and then they sent all those details down here. So then this detective who she actually, her specialty is she basically investigates historical sex crimes. She got in contact with my sister and said, look, this woman's come forward. She has made a statement against Dennis and we could see that there has been a report made in the past that you being my sister, myself and my mother were all victims so for a bit, my family were sort of up in the air. I was straight away, I was like, well, yeah, I want to make a statement. Like this is 
traumatised me my whole life. He should pay. And knowing then that he then went on to do it to other girls, I couldn't calm that thought in my brain. I'd always sort of thought that maybe it was just us and that's it and that's okay. Like if it was just us, that's okay. But I always thought maybe he just stopped and then he moved on and he was happy and he didn't have that need anymore. And I think that was a comfort. And then when it all came out that, no, he had done this to other women or other girls, sorry, that just was a bit too much to handle. You want to put a stop to it. If you don't do anything about it, you feel somewhat responsible. So you're doing the right thing right now. Yeah. Well, that was the thing. Like I I felt sick to my stomach knowing I felt responsible that happened to my sister. And my sister was three years old. I was five. I was in no position to protect her, so to speak. But I've always felt like it was my fault that it happened to her as well. So I can't even imagine how my mum feels because he also sexually assaulted my mum and he was extremely violent to my mum. Like we witnessed that firsthand. He'd even at one point, it would have been probably about 10 years after or so, so when I was about 15, he'd tracked down where we were living at the time and we moved a lot growing up. We were always in the same sort of area, but we moved house maybe once a year and he'd tracked down where we were living. And one day my sister and I were at school and he turned up on the front door and luckily we had a the front door was sort of like, I'm sure you guys would have these sorts of doors in America, but it's where you've got the wooden door, but then it's got sort of mosaic um, designs in glass in the front. So you can sort of see through it, but not really. And it's just a pretty design. But my mum could see that it was him on the other side and she just went to her bedroom and broke down. And eventually he went away. She was too scared to even call the police, though, to say that he was there because she was worried if she called the police that it was just going to make everything worse because then he knew where we were living. So the whole trauma has gone a long time. Like it's really affected my mum and my sister as well. And then at the time of his death, there was eight different victims that had come forward and there was a few more that they were investigating. So eight victims that they had statements for that they were had were pressing charges and it was going to trial. And then there was other victims that were still in the process of being interviewed, but there was no charges laid yet. And so many people come forward when they know it's safe. Yeah. Exactly. And I think it was that intimidation thing because he was a truck driver. He was like a big, burly man. He had two sons that are a couple of years older than me. But I remember even when my mum was dating him, they would have only been maybe eight years old. But I just remember finding them so scary and I was scared of them. And I found out when I was in my early 20s that one of his sons actually is now a convicted pedophile as well. So I don't know what led to that happening as well almost like a family thing it's messed up i shouldn't laugh about it but yeah it it seems like the cycle of abuse continues yeah that's the thing i have a feeling it happened to him i've read a lot because i'm actually studying criminology at university and i've done a fair bit of research on sexual assault victims and then almost like the path they've taken away, their coping mechanism is to offend and do the same thing to someone else because that's all they know. And I have a feeling that's what happened with one of his sons. But at the time that Dennis actually died, he was never actually convicted for what he did. So technically he's, he died innocent, which is I think probably the worst part. Well, not innocent, but died innocent in the eyes of the law here, which is messed up. He actually, when he died... It was November 19, 2017, so later that year. So he was arrested in April of that year and he was held in Silverwater, which is one of the big Ramon centres in Sydney. 
he was held there. He went, applied for bail in the local and district courts and was denied bail. So in Australia, you can then apply to the Supreme Court for bail and our bail laws are crap. There's so many people that even are up on murder charges. Like there's a big case in Australia at the moment and a guy is up, he's been charged with the murder of his wife and he's out on bail at the moment. There was a podcast about that as well, actually. Our bail laws are absolutely crap and he went in in front of a magistrate in the Supreme Court and I'd even written a letter to this magistrate saying I really, I have fears for my safety, I have fears for my family's safety. I was still married at the time so I was worried about my husband and my stepchildren and they just disregarded all that, granted him bail. There was nothing even in his bail conditions about not being around children. It was just that he had to surrender any firearms, surrender his passport and report to police, I think, five times a week. So he was still able to be around young kids while he was out on bail for child sex offences. That just seems like a no-brainer. Yeah. I was shocked when I found out that the detective, um, her name was Claire, that was investigating it all. She was brilliant. She's so supportive. And she called as soon as he got granted bail and she was pissed off at the whole system and the fact that he got granted bail. And I said to her, what's his bail conditions? And she just said those standard conditions. I said, so he has young grandchildren that he's allowed to go home and be around. She said, yep. And our laws are so messed up when it comes to bail. We constantly get men that kill their wives over here and they're granted bail. There was a case here, which is so ridiculous. Someone was found putting needles in strawberries. It created this big crisis basically all over our country. All strawberries were pulled off the shelves and there was no one got injured, luckily. I think one guy swallowed one, but he was okay. This woman who did that, which, yeah, it's bad what she did, to my knowledge is still in jail, sitting there waiting for trial but you can kill someone or you can rape children and you'll get bail. Yeah, of course. It's always inconsistent. And that's all we really want from laws, fairness and consistency. And it never. Yeah, there's no consistency across the board at all. He got granted bail with the Supreme Court. That was in June of 2017. And then on the 17th of November, which was a Saturday, Claire, the detective, called his solicitor and said, look, we have two more people to press charges against him for, so we need you to bring him into the police station on Monday so that we can add those charges and, I guess, do an interview for that. So his lawyer said that, great, no worries, I'll bring him in on Monday. He'd obviously gotten a phone call from his lawyer that day. The Sunday, he rang his stepson, telling his stepson on the phone, oh, these people are trying to ruin my life, I've done nothing wrong, why are all these people against me? And he ended up hanging himself and died on the 18th of November. No, the 19th of November, sorry, 2017. Even in his suicide note, he did this whole sob story about how people were just trying to ruin his life and ex-girlfriends were trying to ruin his life. The only other victims that I knew was my mum and my sister. We didn't know any of the other people that came forward. So there was no way that anyone was there plotting against this bloke. Even on his essentially his deathbed. He couldn't just be honest and say, you know what, I did this and I ruined all these lives. That's the big thing that I've struggled with over the last year and a half. That sort of justice has been taken away. Knowing that he can't hurt anyone again, that's great. I love that. We also found out as well that he was in the 80s, he was a bus school bus driver. So the detective has a feeling there's victims that she was never able to find. But yeah, he can't hurt anyone ever again. But for all of us that were hurt and that have struggled with it and it's affected everything, there's no closure to it. No, and it, he did elude justice and any sort of punishment. 
taking your own life is pretty brutal in itself. But what does anyone get out of that besides him escaping? Exactly. And I feel for his family, as in his partner at the time, she still believed in his innocence. And I guess people get blinded by love. I can't judge her for that. That's her choice. And she lost him and his grandkids lost a granddad. And who knows, he could have been a really great granddad and never done anything to them. I don't know what the situation is. They still to this day believe in his innocence and just think that everyone was against him, which is ridiculous. So there was so much evidence against him and they just still believe that he's innocent. And so they're victims as well because they have lost him and he couldn't even just be honest with them in the end of it. Your suicide note is the very final thing that anyone's going to get communication from you. And I'm not someone that calls suicide gutless or anything. I've had my own suicide attempts through my life, a lot of it because of this stuff. I've lost a few people to suicide and I know that how hard it can get. But here's his one case I 100% say it's gutless because there is no way he would have survived going to prison. No, he couldn't have and he couldn't even face up to his own actions. No, that's the really hard part to deal with, I think, more than anything. The rest of it, you can sort of, you find coping mechanisms, but that, it's it's so frustrating. You just want to scream. And when I gave my statement to Claire, the detective, I was with my then husband at the time, and it took five hours for me to give my statement. And he had to sit there and listen to every brutal detail of what happened to me. And we were newlyweds at the time. We got married in the November and I gave my statement that February. And yeah, he had to listen to everything. And I had to say everything, like things I'd never even told my mother that had happened. And you, obviously, because it's before the courts, you have to be really quite detailed so that there's no ifs, ands or buts about it. Having him seeing his face, hearing what happened to me just broke my heart. And that really impacted on our marriage. You promised the whole time that you're going to do this. It's going to be okay you're going to get justice. And I know that it's not the police's fault or anyone's fault. Well, I kind of hold the courts accountable for his suicide because, yeah, you can commit suicide in prison, but it's a lot harder than if you've just got free will to go out and get a rope and do that. You're not monitored when you're out. You check into a police station once a day. Okay, well, that's 23 other hours of the day to go and do whatever you want. That's really hard because, yeah, you promise this whole time that it's all going to be worth it and it turns out to just be for nothing. This is going down much later in life. Had you been going to therapy and counseling before this? In my early teens, I did. There's a lot of things that have happened since then that it's you could just say, oh, it was always destined to happen. For example, I got diagnosed with um, severe anxiety. I have bipolar disorder and I have ADHD. There's no way to tell 100% if I'd gotten those because of that, or if it was just pre-existing conditions that I was always going to be disposed to. And I also have PTSD, which is obviously from that. So that I can 100% say that caused that. I saw counsellors in my early teens, but I was also going through this phase of, I was just really angry about it. And I felt like, like I love my mother, but the emphasis was on how horrible it was for my sister because she was the youngest one. And it was sort of glossed over the fact that I went through this as well. So I had a lot of anger about that. So I was in my early teens. I didn't want to be speaking to counsellors. I started drinking when I was 14 quite heavily. I would go through like a cask wine, like I think you guys call it box wine. I would drink a four litre one of those in two days. And that was from the age of 14 to when I fell pregnant with my daughter. So that I found out I was pregnant with her in November of 2000 and just before Dennis committed suicide. And a lot of that was just from anger. So 
I remember one counselor told me that whenever I had a memory of what happened or a flashback or a feeling about it, to imagine that there was a brick wall in front of me and that memory was just thrown against it and it shattered into a million pieces and didn't make sense. And I was in high school. I would have been in maybe year eight. And I just thought that was the most ridiculous notion. It made me so angry. I remember I just went home and I was furious. I was absolutely furious. My mom's like, what's wrong? And I said, I'm so pissed off. This counsellor told me this really ridiculous way to look at things. And she said, well, you've got to give it a go. And there was just no understanding there. Telling me something really dumb like that isn't going to help any proper coping mechanism. So I kind of gave up counselling after maybe a year. And I don't feel that it ever really helped. I started self-harming when I was 15 and that's gone all the way up until the day my husband and I separated was the last day that I did that. And I was a teenager in the middle of the 2000s, so the whole emo era. So everyone just thought I was an attention seeker, one of those emo scene kids. And it wasn't the case. There was a lot more going on, but I didn't know how to tell anyone at the time, which sort of fit because I liked punk music. And even now I still listen to punk music and metal and stuff. But at the time, no one realized what was going on. They didn't realize what I was dealing with. And I didn't know how to say I was raped when I was five years old. I didn't know how to say that to people because I felt ashamed. It's not something that you want to talk about, and it's something that most people don't know how to respond to, but yet here you are. You have this thing that's happened, and it's going to be with you for a long time, and it's stayed with you, and how do you explain that to people? The first time I ever told a friend or anyone about it, I just turned 18. So the legal drinking age in Australia was 18. So I'd started going out to clubs and stuff like that. And I remember there was one night and we were out and this guy that we were with was making rape jokes. And this was a very personal interaction, I guess. And he was in my own safe space and he was making these jokes and he wouldn't give up. And some people were like, cut it out, stop it. And this guy kept going and I turned around and I said, I don't think rape's funny. He made a comment about something to do with if a girl's dressed slutty, then she deserves it. I said, what about a five-year-old girl? And he said, oh, that doesn't happen. I said, well, that's funny because I was raped when I was five years old. And there was him and he just, his face just turned white. He looked like he'd seen a ghost and everyone sort of shut up. We were in this pub near home and it almost felt like all the music had gone off and it was just quiet because it was just this bomb that landed of I was 18 then it was 13 years of something I wanted to scream out and I just blurted it out and it was out there then and there was no going back from it I couldn't say oh haha I'm joking or anything like that because it was out there and there was a group of us and now there was all these people that knew my secret and then for a while no one spoke to me people stopped inviting me out and I guess because I killed the fun that night and that's when I did have a couple of friends eventually start coming to me and they're like, look, that night, what you said, what happened? Like, Are you okay? And I slowly started opening up to people. And then I had people open up to me. A couple of friends had had really similar experiences and they'd said, I've never known how to say it because I feel like I'm the only one. And that's when I started being able to come out and share my story a bit more. And I was still partaking in a lot of really destructive behaviors, but I started healing a bit by being able to tell people and then being able to help people through what they'd been through because they felt comfortable telling me what they'd been through and that they weren't the only ones. I'm almost glad now that I did sort of blurt it out in that sense because I feel like if I didn't, I could still be holding on to this. And now I'm not ashamed to tell anyone because I've got nothing to be ashamed of. I was five years old. No one deserves that. And then I went on and was assaulted then by 
my mum's partner I was telling you after he would expose himself to me. And then I was most recently when I was 25, I had a partner and there was a situation there and I was assaulted when I was basically passed out drunk. I don't feel shame for any of it now. And it took a long time to get to that. And no one that's been sexually assaulted should ever feel ashamed because I don't care if you're a child or if you're a girl that goes out and you wear next to nothing, absolutely nothing makes it okay to assault someone. I've said it a million times. I go to music festivals and stuff where it's ravers and hippies and clothing's optional. Yeah. And guess what? Rape and assault isn't happening rampant there. It's actually everyone's being very cool and respectful of each other. I had an ex-girlfriend because I'm bisexual. So I had an ex-girlfriend a few years ago I was dating and she was into BDSM and things like that. And there's a few kink clubs in Sydney. And we spent one New Year's Eve at one one year and it was so much fun. And it was really quite interesting because you see people do shibari rope work and stuff like that. But there was people there that were basically naked and it was the most consensual environment I'd ever been in in my entire life. Yet I could go to a nightclub on a Saturday night and you would see way more inappropriate and offensive behavior happening. It's not about what someone's wearing. It's about someone's mentality that they think that they're entitled to do that to someone. Yeah. And we can't just say it enough. It's a total victim blaming. And I feel bad that when you blurted this out, some of your friends shunned you. And there's still some of those people I haven't spoken to since. They've just never spoken to me again. I was angry about that for a long time, but I just guess they didn't know how to deal with it. And it was awkward for them to, I guess, know that that had happened to someone that they know. It actually had happened to a few people they know, just no one else was game enough to talk about what had happened to them. So I'm glad that I was able to open that sort of conversation with some people that I could tell when they told me their secret as well. It explained a lot of their other behaviours, like things started lining up and I was like, oh, okay, then this makes sense and this makes sense. And I felt a bit stupid for not picking up on it earlier, but until I said it, I thought I was the only one experiencing it. Well, I mean, just about every female I know in my entire life is had either experienced rape or some sort of form of sexual assault. It's really quite concerning. You can easily name people that you know that it's happened to. I've spoken a fair bit about what happened when I was 25 with people because I feel like more people can relate to that. I was really drunk and someone had sex with me when I could not consent. I have no recollection of what had happened. And that's more relatable sometimes, but there's still that stigma about if you were raped as a child. And that's why I wanted to talk to you as well about it because there is so many people feel so much shame about that and then people worry what maybe future partners will think about them I know that that was always a big worry of mine I always thought well I can't ever tell a boyfriend or a girlfriend this because they're going to think I'm a freak or they're going to think there's something wrong with me so it did take me a long time to open up to an actual partner about it not that there's one's worse or whatever than another but I would just think that when you're a child you're innocent. There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing that you could have done to put yourself in a bad situation. No amount of blame or shame. So it's weird that that is the more taboo version of the story. Your child. My daughter's seven months old. I also have a niece and nephew who are the same age that my sister and I were. And I look at them and to see myself and my sister and them and to know what was happening to us when they were my age is just so... It's so hard to fathom because when the detective originally contacted my sister and I back in 2017, I thought I was a lot older because it was always something that I wasn't ever allowed to go and ask my mum about. A lot of it I'd sort of repressed a bit and it's come out over the years, but I was never able to go to my mum and go, how old was I when that was happening? 
I was never able to ask my mum how she found out about it because I never remember telling my mum, but I'd actually gone and told my grandmother and then my grandmother had told my mum. So that's how it all came out. It was not ever something I could ever talk about. My mum struggles with a lot of her own issues. Her and I aren't really close anymore and I'm not really close with any of my family anymore, but that's a whole vast array of reasons. But we do talk, but she had a lot of her own issues as well. So I just, I kept making excuses for her. But then as I was getting older, I was like, if I'm asking you a question about this, it's for my own healing. And I was sort of denied that along the way. I just always thought I was a lot older. I thought I was almost nine when it happened. And then when I went to the detective and that, she said, look, this is a statement we've got. And she said, you know, it happened in 1996. So it was just before I turned six. So I was still five at the time and just, I was blown away because I thought I was a lot older, which nine is no better. Like, it's still horrible to see a five-year-old child and know that that stuff happens to kids that young. And even younger is just disgusting. I can't even understand what would make someone look at a child and think that that's okay. Do you hold resentment towards your mom because of it? I didn't. But now that I know that there was a statement made at the time, I do. And that's horrible to admit. And I shouldn't resent my mom because she brought me into this world and she brought me up as a single mum and she did the best she could. But I just kind of feel like it's your job as a parent to protect your child. And if you know that that's gone on, I get that she was scared. I also know that if I was to find out tomorrow that something like that had happened to my daughter, there could be someone at my house with a gun. It wouldn't stop me from making sure that they were where they needed to be behind bars. I think becoming a mother has also shown me that as well. There's nothing I wouldn't do to protect my daughter. There's a lot of things that's happened with my mum in my life that has made me parent differently, I guess. We can be resentful towards our parents for a lot of other reasons too. So it Yeah, matter. that's true. I guess some people are resentful for the silliest reason, like mum didn't buy me a car for my birthday. So yeah, people do have less reasons. So I didn't have my dad growing up. So my sister's only actually my half-sister. She knows her dad. I didn't know my dad. So my mum was sort of it. And I feel like there's things that she should have maybe picked up on and protected me from that she didn't. And I used to think, okay, well, maybe that's how you get love is you make that sort of effort into your appearance. And then as I became a teenager, I thought that that meant having sex and not saying no and going and just being quite promiscuous. I thought that's just what I based love on. So I lost my virginity or not. Well, when I say I've lost my virginity, people then, some people in my past have reminded me, well, technically you lost your virginity when you were five, but no, I'm sorry. No, I consensually lost my virginity when I was 15. And I was with a boyfriend at the time and he was probably the only good boyfriend I've ever had. He was really lovely, but I was just too young. And then after that, I just became quite promiscuous and I equated that with love. And I was the type of girl that would send nudes to every boy that asked for them. I'd go to school then the next day and everyone had seen naked photos of me and I just didn't care. And then when I started dating seriously, I had a boyfriend that I lived with for a few years. He was lovely. Just again, was we were too young. But then after that, I um, started dating a guy that I ended up becoming engaged to and he was really, really violent. I think because I grew up seeing my mum being abused by Dennis and knowing what had happened, I just saw it as, oh, he loves me that much that he doesn't want to lose me. So he lashes out and he gets violent and he chokes me and he punches me. And at one point he cut my throat, things like that. And I just feel like it's things that my mum should have gone, oh, hang on, like this isn't right. And she should have protected me more from, and she didn't. And I guess I was an adult then, even to the point that after him and I separated, he has borderline personality disorder. And I was with him for four years, but after we separated, he went to my mum and did the whole sob story of, I love Melissa so much and why won't she take me back? And my mum actually called me and said, you need to take 
Nathan back. He loves you so much. And I just thought, are you fucking delusional? Like, this is the same thing you went through and you're trying to tell your daughter that she should accept that behaviour? Because my mum knew what was happening. She took me to the hospital when he broke my hand one time. She knew about all the abuse and didn't ever try and intervene. And I just feel like there should have been more of her sort of watching out for me. But again, I was an adult then. You can't stop anyone. But there wasn't ever a conversation of, Mel, this is a bad relationship. You need to get out of it. It was just, oh, okay, that's just what's happening now. I understand that we all apply our own expectations for ourselves onto others. But protecting your children, I see that as just the bare minimum of parenting. Oh, yeah. Like before I had my daughter, I never wanted kids. I was not a kid person. I love my niece and nephew, but that's about it. And now I've had her and she comes before absolutely anything. If someone hurt my daughter, there's not a doubt in my mind I could kill for her, which is horrible to say. And I just feel like that I wasn't given that from my mother. There was never that real protective side. There was never that nurturing and that protection along the way. It just wasn't there. And it's still not really there now. My mum's helped me out financially over the years, but emotionally and protecting me, it's just never been there. I can understand why you don't talk to her very often. If she's the one that's taken you to the hospital for abuse, which is I mean, a broken hand or getting your throat slit, that's on another level of abuse. It's obvious. There's no denying it. There's no trying to escape of, oh, well, he didn't mean it. No. Yeah. It wasn't just a one-off. You can just go, oh, he lost his temper once and that's it. It was going on for the entire four years we were together. And still to this day, I've deliberately moved to an area that you can't see my house from the street. You can't easily find out where I live because of him. And it's behaviour that I don't think I ever would have accepted if I wasn't brought up in a way that that was just the norm. It's that ripple effect. Yeah, 100%. Which is funny because my sister, on the other hand, met her husband when she was 16 and they've been together almost 10 years now. He's amazing. He's such probably the only one in my family I can stand half the time. He's absolutely worships the ground my sister walks on. They have two beautiful kids. They're about to have another one. So she went the complete opposite. She never really acted out, but she has her other ways of dealing with it. She's completely a control freak. And I say that in the most loving way possible. She's very very controlling and I think that's because she had lost so much control when she was a kid she doesn't engage in anything like she won't drink I think she maybe smoked a cigarette once when she was 16 and she still feels like such a rebel about it to this day and she's almost 26 she doesn't ever like to feel out of control so she doesn't ever do anything that could lead to her being out of control when I think of that we went in completely opposite directions like I didn't deal with it well at all and I did everything I can to forget and to rebel and to punish myself for it and she went the other way she's really settled she's a great mom she's got an amazing husband she's never been through a bad relationship or anything like that in her adult life so it is weird to look at those comparisons and then my mom she's been single for 20 years now she did date a fair bit after Dennis there was always different guys from kids and then she got married again when I was nine but after that ended after a month I think the marriage lasted she's been single ever since then and always cites that because she can't trust men because of what happened she's a complex person (laughs) it's weird that multiple people can be brought up in the same household and all turn out differently yeah my mom and my sister are very similar personality wise and they also live together now as well so it's my mom my sister my sister's husband and her kids so it's very much them against me which is another reason I don't really speak to them all that much but I remember when I was at uni in my early 20s when I did my first degree I had to do a, 
an assignment on the nature versus nurture debate and I used my own personal experience then for that debate because you could see the complete polar opposite ways that lives have gone and definitely sort of the black sheep of the family because I've gone in this very opposite direction. Whenever I study or research a serial killer, you know, you're always trying to figure out that nature versus nurture. And I always say, well, it's got to be both. It's never just one thing or one or the other. I, I look at my own family. My brother and sister are nothing alike. We all turned out completely different. And everyone looks at me and says, well, Justin turned out okay. So what's your problem? And it doesn't mean that it was a good childhood because I came out okay, quote unquote. I just didn't see or respond to it in the same way that my other siblings did. That's exactly it. You can have someone that goes through the exact same situation and they're going to deal with it completely different ways. And that's just, I guess, maybe that's the way we're wired. My sister and I only share the DNA from my mother because we have different dads. So maybe that affects it. There's so much that goes into those things and you see it all the time. Like you said, with serial killers, there's all these serial killers that grow up with siblings and those siblings are perfectly well adjusted. And then they go on and kill all these people and they've come from the exact same environment. It's just they've processed it so much differently and they've chosen different ways to deal with it. And it's not always a conscious choice. I didn't realize until really until I sort of quit drinking when I felt pregnant, how much of my behavior was shaped by being assaulted. For so long, I was just like, oh, I'm a teenager. Like I'm being fun and I'm going out and I'm drinking and I'm in my twenties. Like I can get blackout drunk every night. Who cares? I'm a fun time. And that was the thing as well. Everyone wanted to hang around me then. That I was that fun party girl. It was always, oh, Mel will come out, give Mel a call. And I was always down to party and turned into drug taking. And I was always up for that. So and it's so easy to excuse that behavior and go, I'm in my teens, I'm in my 20s, this is what people do. And it's not until you stop and you look back and you're like, that was really unhealthy. And you start piecing it all together. When I made the statement to the detective, she had put us in contact with victim services. I was entitled to free counseling through them. And as was my sister and my mum. So my sister went, I think she's the one that stuck it out the longest out of all of us. My mum, I think, went to like one session. I went to a few, but then I gave birth and then my daughter was quite sick when she was born. So I got quite caught up in that. The first session, she just started asking me about relationships and about substance use and everything like that. And she was really able to sort of piece it together for me and go, wow, okay, so you've done this. And she saw my mum, my mum became a really heavy alcoholic. And even to this day, she can't go a single day without just even one glass of wine. She needs it, otherwise she has withdrawals. She was like, you saw that behaviour and you saw that part of me said that that's a way to deal with things. But, yeah, it wasn't until I stopped drinking and started really sitting back and going, how the hell did I get to this point in my life that I started realising how much it's affected me. I just always thought, oh, that's something that happened when I was a kid. That's old news. But it's affected basically every part of my life since then. Yeah, drinking never does anything good for you. No. <laughs> Might make you a really good dancer for a night, but that's about it. Yeah. With the term drowned in my sorrows, I mean, it's so true. And alcohol is always just a depressant and yeah. suppressant, and it suppresses your issues and problems. And you never deal with them until you are sober of clear well, mind and body. That's exactly it. It suppressed it for – so I started drinking when I was 14, like heavily – and I would say by the time I was 16, I was drinking every single day until I found out I was pregnant and I was, I was 26 when I found out I was pregnant. So what's that? That's 12 years of heavy drinking. And it wasn't until I stopped 
and realized that I'd just pushed all this stuff away because I would wake up in the morning and start drinking and I'd lose jobs because I just wanted to be at home drinking. And I think that's the only thing that my mum was ever like, this is a problem. You need to stop drinking. And I was like, shut up. I'm in my 20s. I'm having fun. This is what all my friends do. When really, no, my friends would go out on the weekend and they'd have a good time, but they'd go to work like a normal person Monday to Friday and they wouldn't be drunk at work and they wouldn't be doing drugs in the bathroom at work just to not feel anything which is funny because I worked in mental health and I was a support worker. So somehow I was still able to really help people. I don't, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that one out. You could relate. <laughs> That's why. Yeah. <laughs> I, I always wonder if people knew that I was most of the time I was either extremely hungover or I'd already started drinking for the day. I didn't so much share my experience with sexual assault with clients, but I used to share my experience with domestic violence because I was still in that violent relationship for a lot of it. But I would always, if I'd speak to a client, I was so ashamed that I was still in that relationship. I'd say, oh, I was in this relationship previously. And really, in reality, it was still going on. But I had so many clients that would come to me and they'd really thank me. They'd say, you know, it feels good to speak to someone that knows what it's like and hasn't just read from a textbook and thinks that they know what all this is about. Yeah. It's really cool, though, to hear that you were counseling other people, though, in the midst of all of this. I absolutely loved it. And that was the reason I was saying to my friend today, I said, because I'd said to her, you know, look, I told her I was going to speak with you. And she said, oh, that's great. And she said, what's your motivation? I said, well, that was the part I always loved about working because I'm a stay-at-home mum at the moment and I don't think I'll go back to working in mental health. So I'm sort of trying to, I'm studying criminology, but besides that, I'm trying to figure out what my next move career-wise is. But I said, that was always the part I loved was that I knew that by sharing my story, I was helping people. No matter how fucked up I was still at the time, I was able to make an impact positively on someone else's life. That was when I really started not being ashamed of things and because I realised it could, yeah, you might have people that go, oh, you know, those things need to be kept secret and that's that's not something to be discussed in public. Well, I don't have time for those people. That's their opinion. If I can make one person feel better by sharing what I've been through, then I'll do it any day of the week. That really helped when I was working. Even when I left my last job, which was when I was still with my ex-husband and I got this beautiful handwritten card from a client that had just told me like, about how I'd helped her. She wasn't really a client that I would think, oh yeah, I've had a lot to do with her. But I didn't actually realize how much impact I'd had. And she'd written out this really beautiful card and said, you know, thank you so much for sharing with me because you've given me the strength to, she ended up leaving the relationship she was in that was really violent. So yeah, I'm an open book now. I don't hide anything because if it helps one person, then what I've been through is worth it. Well, that's kind of why I do the peripheral. It's, I, just, yeah. <laughs> I just get through to one person. I feel like I've done my job. Oh, I love it. When I saw that you started to, I was like, oh, yes, this will be awesome. So, and I love that, yeah, it is an avenue that not a lot of people would necessarily turn to. Most people go, okay, if you need some help, go see a counselor. Well, that doesn't work for everyone. Like I know myself, I've never gone through from start to finish, I guess, so to speak, with a counselor or a psychologist or a psychiatrist. With psychiatrists, I've gone and I've got the meds that I need to be on and I haven't followed up because sitting down in a room one-on-one with someone who you know has done years of study to analyse you, that freaks me out. But it was one of your episodes that you did on domestic violence. That really helped me. And I was out of that relationship by then. But that was when I started thinking, maybe this is a different avenue that I can sort of help by getting my story out there because I've shared a bit on my Instagram before. And I've had some people, you know, come to me and say, you know, thank you for saying that. But that's only a few people. It's weird because you blurting out that you were raped as a child seemed to be more cathartic to you than anything else. 
yeah, it, at the time I sort of, I was like, shit, why did I say that? Because I felt people had made it clear that I'd ruined the night. But it literally felt like an actual physical weight had been lifted off me and that now it was out there and there was no going back. And then over the years I was slowly able to start telling people and now if anyone, for example, today when I dropped my daughter off at my friend's, she lives with her parents and they said, oh, you're looking after Stevie. That's my daughter's name. Looking after Stevie today. And she said, yeah, I am. And I'm speaking to a podcaster today. And they said, oh, what for? And I told them and they were just like, oh, okay. Like it was just, it wasn't this big, scary elephant in the room. It was just, okay, you're being, and I think if I'd sort of was like a bit arming and ahhing about it, it might've been a bit different. They may have reacted differently, but I just said, oh, I'm going on to speak about the sexual assault I experienced. And I don't think they would have known what had happened to me. I don't think it ever would have come up in conversation with my friend and well, she knows what happens, but between her and her parents. So I have nothing to be ashamed of anyway, but I will speak to anyone about it now. And especially as well, when people ask what happened with it and I say, look, there was no resolution. I never got my day in court. I never got to see him face justice. He had a really beautiful eulogy written about him by his family and he was fair dot world by his family, except for that one son who I think he's still in jail at the moment for his own assaults. The rest of his family, as far as I know, all think he was just this really great dad and husband and grandfather. There was never that closure. And that was the thing is when we were going through and waiting for court dates and trial dates to be set and everything like that, the detective had sat me down and said, look, his defence attorney will try and put the blame on you. And I've heard of it happening in cases where it might be a college girl that's been raped or something like that. And it's like, oh, well, what was she wearing? And she was drinking and it's her own fault. But I thought, how could you possibly do that to a five-year-old? And she said, you know, look, is there anything in your social media accounts and stuff like that that could be used against you? I said, well, yeah, there is. A few years ago, I did... I don't know if you've heard of Suicide Girls. It's a website for alternative modelling, but it's nude modelling, but it's quite tasteful, but also a bit risque at the same time, if that's possible. Um, but I decided to do a nude photo shoot and those photos are all online and I posted about it on my Instagram and everything like that. And she said, well, that can be used against you. So I was then also preparing myself for getting up in front of a room full of strangers and having my that sort of stuff being used against me and trying to fathom that and having my own personal life used against me for something someone did to me when I was five years old. And that was really hard to sort of wrap my head around. And I thought, well, do I just try and delete everything that I've ever put online, which obviously once you put something online, it's out there. And I'm not ashamed of ever doing modeling like that. I loved it. And that was sort of a way for me to start claiming back Sounds really, really corny, <laughs> but I started claiming back my body and myself as mine. I had control over it because when I did that photo shoot, I had control over every aspect and it was about me being comfortable and about what I wanted and I never regret doing that. People ask me now that I'm a mum, they say, oh, what are you going to do when Stevie finds out about that? And I say, I'm not going to hide that. I'll be like, look, look how good your mum looked before you ruined her body. <laughs> but just the idea that that can be used against you and then having to then that was such a mental thing for me as well, preparing myself to get up in a room full of people. And that that also really affected me because then I started drinking even more because I was so freaked out about that. And then it was all for nothing because he killed himself and it's just gone away. Only thing that's still to come out of it is I'm still entitled for counselling if I wanted to go back, but I find therapy through listening to podcasts and stuff yeah. like that or yeah. even listening to 
I listen to a lot of true crime stuff, like listening to all that. I find that really therapeutic for me. I don't know how, but I do. Um, You're not the only one. <laughs> yeah, like I will go to sleep listening to true crime podcasts and my ex-husband, he used to be like, can you turn that off or can you put headphones in? And I'm like, why? It's calming. And he's like, I don't need to hear about Jeffrey Dahmer killing someone when I'm trying to go to sleep. And I'm like, all right, fine. I'll put my headphones in. But that's always been really calming to me. And then besides possible counselling I could get, which obviously I don't want, the only other thing is victim services. So I'm eligible for what they call a recognition payment. So basically the state recognises my, in quotation marks, pain and suffering, which I think is a cop-out. And that's, I think, $10,000. And I put in an application for that back in May of 2017. So And that's still being processed. And yeah, $10,000 will, as a single mum that's not working, that will help out. But that doesn't I can take that or leave that. That doesn't change anything. That doesn't make anything better that happened. What would have made it better is if he was kept in jail until his trial and he was trialed and he was found guilty and he was in public named as a pedophile. He was shown to be what he is and there was no doubt about it. Then if he went on and hung himself in jail, good on you. I wouldn't have cared. And that sounds really horrible, but I just would not have cared but I just wanted that justice and that was taken. And it was like that last final thing that he took from me. Because at this point, some people can say, especially his family, it's your word against his. And it was never fleshed out in court, proven. Yeah, it's, you know, innocent till proven guilty. So as far as they're concerned, as far as the law's concerned, he's innocent. But I guess having a detective that she was really supportive and as horrible as it was to know that he did go on and offend and he did have other victims, it was also comforting in a way because it reaffirmed to me that, okay, well, there are other people that believe what happens because they've been through it. It wasn't just my word against his or my sister's word against his or my mum's word against his. There was other people that he did it to. Apparently, even the day he got arrested, he did this whole shocked face like, oh, because the detective called me straight away and she said, we've just arrested him. We're about to charge him now. And she just said, his look, she goes, I wanted to punch the smug look off his face because he just tried looking like he was so innocent. And he even, even when he was being interviewed, he said, oh, they're confused. It's Troy, which is his son. It's Troy that they're thinking did that. There's a 20-something-odd year age gap between the two of them, for one. Troy was eight years old when it happened to me. I think I know the difference between a man in his late 30s and a boy. But, yeah, the fact that he even used the fact that his son was a convicted pedophile for his own gain, which I find really sick. And again, it just comes back. Why is his son a pedophile? Who abused his son and showed his son this behavior? A hundred percent. Like we don't know for sure, but I would put everything I have on the fact that his son would have been abused because you learn that behavior somewhere. And it's not just, I'm sorry, it's not just a coincidence in my mind that his dad did that and then he became a pedophile. Um, And he's had multiple multiple convictions for different victims and things like that. He even went on the run at one point, probably about 10 years ago, he had an ankle monitoring bracelet and got it off and went on the run. Yeah, it, there's no doubt in my mind he was abused as well. And and then I feel for him because he's a victim in it too. His life could have been completely different. And instead he he's in and out of jail now and he's only a few years younger than me. He should be having a family and all that. And he doesn't have that. He keeps offending. It's so interesting that you go to like kind of scrub your social media to make sure that nothing can be used against you. And even I don't typically follow people back that have very risque pictures or anything because 
I don't want to be judged for it. And it's so yeah. ridiculous because it's like, oh, I'm just somebody followed me. I'm just following them back. Yeah, social media can be so used against you and it, when it shouldn't be. I'm glad I didn't end up deleting all the photos. Like they're still there. And obviously Instagram guidelines, there's no full nudity or anything like that on there. But I'd even, when it all happened, I'd contacted Suicide Girls, their media team. And I said, look, I have a photo set on the website. I'm going through some legal things and I didn't want to go into them what was happening. And they said, we can take it down after, I can't remember how many, how long it was after, I think it was like 90 days. And this set had only just gone live on their website. And they said, look, we can take it down after that. And then by that time, I'd sort of process it. And I thought, well, no, I don't want, that's another thing that's going to be taken from me. Because at some point I have to say, no, I'm not letting you take anything more and stuff it. If there's nude photos of me on the internet that I've consensually put on there that I'm bloody proud of, then I'm not going to remove that because some weasel of a defense attorney could use that against me. And what the hell does you doing this as an adult have to do with you as a child? That was the thing. I was like, well, hang on, but this happened when I was five and she's like, I've seen it happen. Like the detective, she said, I've seen it happen before. Like, photos on someone's Facebook of them out having a drunken night can be used against them for something that happened to them 20 years beforehand. And I was actually originally like years and years and years ago, I wanted to study to get into law and become a defense attorney. And then this really cemented for me. I'm like, nope, I can't do that. That is such victim blaming and victim blaming to the extreme to for actions that happened after something had even happened to them and try and use that against them to call into question their character. It's disgusting. Who knows? He might have had a really great attorney that wouldn't have done that, but that was something I had to prepare myself for, and that was really full on. Whereas, on the other hand, my sister had nothing to hide. Like her, her social media is a you know beautifully, perfectly posed photos of her children and her and her husband. So, but I sort of went into meltdown about that, and I was really worried. You know, some I guess conservative juror maybe might look at that and say, "Well, hang on, she's done nude modelling, so what sort of person is she?" And I guess that's all it takes. I mean, straight up, I've had people write in with the paying for porn episode or whatever, and people are just like, why would you listen to this person, this whatever language they choose to use and be like, yeah, that's disgusting that you would give somebody a platform like that. I loved that episode. That was <laughs> like, an awesome episode. Yeah, I'm like, it's a billion dollar industry and you're probably watching porn right now as you're writing this email. So go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, like porn, the sex industry, like sex, like prostitution. It's the oldest, yeah. like oldest job in the whole entire world. Like why are we shaming people for something that's really natural? Yeah. But yeah, you're, I guess you're always going to get people that think that. Like I've had people that when I've shared before on my social media, I've shared bits and pieces. Like, for example, when there's things in the media that come up. Uh, so I know in Australia we just had a royal commission into institutionalised sexual abuse of children. So, for example, the Catholic Church over here is a big one that they were looking into. And I'd made a comment, like someone commented on something on Facebook and I made a comment back, like alluding to the abuse because it took me a while to open up publicly about that but people in my inner circle knew about it and then my mum uh, Facebook messaged me and she said Melissa we don't talk about that stuff like we don't air that dirty laundry I said why I'm not the one that did anything wrong I'm not the one that broke my hand I'm not the one that slit my throat I'm not the one that beat the living crap out of you for four years why should I not speak about something that happened to me people go and talk about how their day was like sometimes my day was getting the living shit beaten out of me like what I should just act like that never happened but my family is very um 
very, I guess, they're like, we don't talk about that or you just let sleeping dogs lie, so to speak. It's always that weird, what will people say? Even now, my mum, for example, we met up a few months ago for coffee with one of her friends and um, she knows this friend because I went to, I grew up with her friend's son. So she's known her since I was a kid. I recently changed my surname after I, my husband and I separated. I changed my surname to my biological dad's surname because I tracked down his family finally and he passed away a few years ago. So I never got to meet him. Um, so my daughter's actually named after my dad. Someone had asked a question on Facebook once, why did you change your surname to what it is? And I said, oh, it's my biological dad's last name. And then my mum, when we went to coffee with her friend beforehand, she sat me down. She's like, now, if she asks anything about, because my mum had an affair, so I'm a product of that affair. But my mum made this big elaborate story I had to go along with that her and her husband, which is my sister's dad, that they were separated and all this. And I had to go along with this big elaborate thing because what would people think about her? And I thought you had an affair like 28 years ago. Who hasn't had an affair these days? That's why my marriage ended. My husband had an affair. She was so worried about what people would think. And I just thought, well, now you deny me being able to even speak about my dad truthfully. And I'm a very truthful person. So I find it hard to, I kind of overshare way too much because I feel like, oh, if I don't explain things properly, people are going to think I'm being dishonest. So I had to just sort of sit there and, yeah, she the topic came up. She's like, oh, I saw you change your last name. I said, oh, yeah. And then my mum quickly interjected and explained her side of how things went in the way she wanted it to be perceived. So I was like, all right. And I'm just sitting there nodding like, mm-hmm, yeah. And thankfully my daughter then needed a feed. I was like, oh, better go feed Stevie. Yeah. And that was my out for a bit. But, yeah, it's always what would people think? And I don't give a shit what people think at the end of the day. The only people that matter to me is – the people that I love. Everyone else is just background noise as far as I'm concerned. No, oh, it's it's true. And it's I don't even Google myself anymore because I kind of do care what people think. And when people say really nasty stuff about me, I'm like, I just don't want to read it. <laughs> just, oh, I, I'm done I with it. I feel for um, Marissa from the – and it's like, well, if you were in a, a relationship like that, you would understand. It's not as easy as just going, oh, you hit me this one time, I'm going to leave now. Some people can do that, and I really admire those people, and I think that's really amazing. But majority of people, it doesn't work like that. And unless you're in that situation, people can't really understand it. They just, again, they victim blame. They think, oh, well, you stayed, so I guess you must have liked it. Yeah, she's ridiculous. They try to understand and they try to, you know, I always say the armchair quarterback of what I would do in that situation and what I would do in the comfort climate controlled area of my own home where I don't have a single problem. What would I do in that situation? And it's not a good comparison at all. And it sucks because when you're in that situation, you do make every excuse in the book for this person because you love them. Yeah, I made excuses for even after we separated after I left him I finally was able to leave him I had to leave everything I had because he wouldn't leave our house but I had to pack up and just I ended up finding a roommate and I just left and I even took him back after a bit and then I finally had the balls again to end it for good but still to this day 99% of me hates him I still have nightmares it's only two people in this world I have nightmares about and it's him and Dennis and even like my ex-husband did really messed up shit to me but I don't even have nightmares about him I still sometimes I have nightmares sometimes that he comes and takes my daughter which I know is never going to happen because he has no interest in her but obviously like 99% of me hates Dennis but then there's that part of me that's like okay well maybe something really horrible happened to Dennis and that made him do what he did to me and then 
I look at my ex-fiance and I'm like, well, he has borderline personality disorder, so he can't help it. But then I come back to it and I'm like, well, no, he was diagnosed. He was only diagnosed with that actually after the day he cut my throat. He lost it because I went out with a friend the night before and I was a designated driver. I wasn't drinking or anything. And he absolutely lost it. And I woke up to him choking me up and smashing up the house and everything. And he kept me in the apartment for eight hours. He took my phone. I used to hide my iPad underneath the washing machine, which was in our bathroom. So I ran into the bathroom and I locked the door when he started losing it. And I was trying to message my sister on it. But because I was logged into the cloud, it started showing up on my phone, which he'd taken. And I just heard him go, you fucking idiot. So then he started messaging my sister pretending it was me going, oh, ha, ha, I'm just joking. Like, because I was telling my sister to call the police. But it wasn't until that day that he was then, after everything that had happened, he only stopped assaulting me that day because the neighbour that lived below us, because we lived in an apartment block, had heard me screaming and came and knocked on the door and he freaked out and thought it was the police. And he finally calmed down and I just sat there and he was crying and I felt really bad for him. And I said, I can either go to the police right now and you're going to go to jail because he already had a criminal record for assaulting another ex-girlfriend. I said, or you can let me take you to the doctor because something's wrong with you. And it wasn't until then that he was diagnosed with borderline and then he never did anything about it. He just still thinks everyone else is the problem. Now I look back, I'm like, I should have just gone to the police and had it. Well, I eventually went to the police after it all ended, but that's another story. They never did anything because his current girlfriend's dad is one of the head sergeants or something at that police station so he protects him and he's known that his current girlfriend since they were kids yeah you still want to protect that person and I think as well for so long that's why my mum also there was still that part of her that loved Dennis and she wanted to protect him a bit as well and unfortunately that and her being scared of him outweighed her wanting to protect my sister and I and getting justice when it should have happened it's funny because on paper if I was to say write everything down right now You'd think my life is horrible, but I'm the happiest I've ever been. You'd say, oh, but you're a single mum. Your husband up and left you for another woman. You're not working, so I am on government payments, which in Australia there's a lot of support, like welfare payments, which are really, really good, thankfully. My daughter had health problems when she was born. I was diagnosed with postnatal depression. Like you'd list all these things and think I'd be miserable, but because I got sober and because I got to a point of being able to deal with everything, and I'm still dealing with it, and I think I'll always be dealing with it. But I started breaking everything down and making healthy efforts to fix things. I'm the happiest I've ever been now, which I never thought was the case. I was always someone that really needed someone to love me, like I needed a partner because I think that comes back to being a kid as well. Dennis used to say, like, after he would rape me, he would say, you know, I do this because I love you. But now I've been single almost a year and a half, which before the idea of that would have petrified me, but now... I couldn't imagine any other way. And my daughter has absolutely changed my life. She saved me. I would have been dead by the time I'm 30 if it wasn't for her. I said I was self-harming since I was 15, I think it was. And then the last time I ever cut was the day my husband and I separated, which was just before I found out I was pregnant. And I haven't since then. And then it was hard at first when I found out I was pregnant, especially because my husband, ex-husband wanted me to have an abortion and then got a bit violent when I said I wouldn't. Everything in this world I have is because of my daughter. She saved my life and I'll do anything I can to protect her because at the end I'm all she has in this world and she drives me mental because she doesn't sleep. <laughs> but <laughs> she's made everything so much better and it's made me become healthy. So And I'll make sure as she grows up that she knows how much she's her just being here in this world. And she's only seven months old. Like she has no idea the impact that she's made, but 
I'll make sure she knows. She can listen to this later on in life. Oh, I'll make her. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.